Welcome to our podcast, Heart Failure Morning Commute, Managing Heart Failure in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by independent educational grants from Boeinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Eli Lilly and & Company, and from Merck Sharp & Dome Corporation. In this episode, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Dr. Javed Butler discuss treating patients who have diabetes and heart failure and the remarkable story of SGLT2 inhibitors for this patient population. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bott is Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs, Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Boston. Dr. Butler is Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Mississippi Jackson. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bott will begin our discussion. Well, Javed, welcome back again. Let's take a closer look now at heart failure management in the patient with diabetes and heart failure. Our last episode, we talked a lot about prevention, but now let's get into the thick of things with management. And really, I'd say there's been nothing quite as exciting in recent years in this area as the SGLT2 inhibitors, which have been found to be very effective as drugs for diabetes, certainly have benefits on the kidney, have benefits on the heart, so beyond just the glycemic control aspect, a really remarkable cardiorenal benefits. Maybe we can just start off for the audience uh, with you reviewing the key data from the major trials, and, and there have been several, of course. Yeah, so you know now we are talking about people who have heart failure, so they have already had manifest heart failure. We have talked about sort of prevention of heart failure and screening and those things in our uh, previous post- podcast. So if you already have heart failure, the first thing to realize is that SGLT2 inhibitors are cardiovascular risk-modifying agents where the anti-diabetic effect, they're, they're great drugs for diabetes, and they should be used for the management of diabetes for sure. And we talked a lot about how they prevent heart failure and type 2 diabetes. But when it comes to heart failure, the mindset is a little bit different. We use these agents uh, as cardiovascular risk-modifying agent, irrespective of whether somebody has diabetes or not. So now uh, we are actually sitting on data from three large trials, uh, two in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, one with empagliflozin, EMPA-reduced trial, and one with dapagliflozin, DAPA-HF trial, uh, and then one in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction uh, with empagliflozin called EMPA-preserved uh, uh, trial, uh, and then actually a, a study in acute heart failure as well with empagliflozin called EMPULSE, uh, and then obviously nobody knows the, the trial in worsening heart failure patients uh, better than uh, you, uh, Deepak, which is a soloist trial uh, looking at diabetic patients with worsening heart failure. So there's a lot of data out there for the use of these agents in patients with heart failure, uh, but our thought process has evolved of thinking of these drugs not only as diabetic agents, but also as cardiovascular risk-modifying agents irrespective of diabetes. Yes, it really has been a wealth of data, as you mentioned, from those trials specifically having to do with heart failure patients. 
Uh, in total, they're showing benefit in acute heart failure and chronic heart failure and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So really uh, lots of different benefits. I think you know guidelines and labeling uh, in various regions of the world may be lagging a bit, but, but the data that have been amassed and the uh, consistency and reproducibility is really quite amazing. And, and that doesn't even uh, cover all the preceding trials, not just the ones specific to patients with heart failure, but just the trials of SGT2 inhibitors in patients with diabetes that were conventional cardiovascular outcome trials that were designed to satisfy that initial FDA requirement that diabetes drugs or that new diabetes drugs don't increase MACE or major adverse cardiovascular events. And it was really temporary outcome that uh, changed the field when it showed uh, in that cardiovascular outcome trial, not only that empagliflozin was safe from a cardiovascular perspective, but that it actually reduced the rate of MACE, in particular uh, cardiovascular death, and then hospitalizations for heart failure turned out. We've been initially focused really more on ischemic events in the diabetes cardiovascular outcome trial world, but it turned out there's a, a very large benefit in reducing heart failure there in that diabetes cardiovascular outcome trial. And then after that, uh, data with canagliflozin from the CANVAS program and dapagliflozin uh, from the DECLARE trial followed, uh, showing in slightly different populations uh, benefits in reducing heart failure hospitalizations also. So very consistent uh, theme there across multiple trials. And then trials in the kidney world as well, uh, looking at these drugs uh, with, with trials that are still ongoing. But trials such as DAPA-CKD with dapagliflozin or uh, the SCORE trial with sotagliflozin showing significant benefit uh, as well in the CKD world. So whether it's heart failure or chronic kidney disease or diabetes, uh, to date, all the trials of SGLT2 inhibitors, the large trials have been positive with uh, multiple trials that are still ongoing, um, uh, trials uh, such as empakidney looking at patients with CKD with or without diabetes and empagliflozin deliver uh, looking at dapagliflozin and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So it's, uh, to me, a, a remarkable sort of situation where there's already a lot of great data for SGLT2 inhibitors uh, in patients with diabetes, which is, I guess, the focus of this podcast, but even in patients without diabetes that have uh, CKD or, or, or heart failure with more data uh, yet to come over the next one to two years, so large boluses of data uh, that are expected. And as well, these drugs are being uh, studied, uh, empagliflozin and dapagliflozin in particular in patients that are acute patients, that is coming in with acute coronary syndromes, acute myocardial infarction, uh, seeing what the role is. In fact, you're uh, leading one of those trials with empagliflozin impact MI. So uh, to me, it, it, it's um, really remarkable. And as you know, Dr. Brownwald had uh, said, in many respects, these drugs were like the statins of heart failure, uh, where their use is eventually going to become as common as the use of statins. In, in particular, that will accelerate as more data come out, as guidelines are updated, as drug labels are updated, and then eventually once the drugs go generic. Uh, but, um, but I see that there's uh, going to be a lot more uh, use of this, and it's something that uh, will have to be uh, a data set that's familiar to primary care physicians, to cardiologists, to endocrinologists, to nephrologists, um, so uh, really uh, pretty remarkable. So, you know, that's the clinical trial data situation in a nutshell. You know, we could go on probably uh, for an hour going through all the data that are out there. But what about mechanisms of action? 
these were diabetes drugs initially. They lower glucose and do a pretty good job of that. But that doesn't really explain all these other benefits that we're seeing in the heart and the kidney, does it? No, so that's sort of the interesting part, right? So when the initial trials in type 2 diabetes uh, came out, uh, it was natural to assume that glycemic control is leading to these heart failure benefits. But what was interesting uh, was that the starting hemoglobin A1C, the ending hemoglobin A1C, and the delta changes in hemoglobin A1C during the trial had no correlation, no bearing on improving heart failure outcomes. So the question was that there's certain, certainly something else is going on uh, which is leading to this heart failure benefit. So we sort of embarked as a, as a medical scientific community uh, on a whole bunch of studies. I mean, you know, at this point, there are, there are tons and tons of data, mechanistic data, pharmacodynamic data, uh, either in animals or in humans, uh, where we have learned that these drugs uh, have beneficial effect on cardiac structure and function. So LVH reversal, reverse remodeling, a reduction in LV volumes, improved ejection fraction, diastology, fibrosis, atrial function. They have improved vascular structure and function. So things like aortic stiffness and endothelial function. They certainly have a lot of renal benefit in terms of you know, natriuresis and osmotic diuresis, but far important uh, is reduction in intraglomerular pressures per se and preservation of renal function in the long run. And then there is a series of systemic benefits uh, that you get, decreased adiposity, inflammation, oxidative stress, perhaps related to that some decrease in neurohormonal activation. Lots of data on fatty acid oxidation and the low-level ketones improving mitochondrial efficiency and ATP generation, uh, autophagy uh, uh, improvement. Uh, so, so there's a there's a and there there are, there are more sort of hypotheses uh, that are coming up. Uh, but regardless of the the vast uh, amount of data that has come out on how these drugs work, there are two or three sort of common lessons here. So one, as a clinician, you know sometimes I sort of fall into this trap. Uh, of having a linear thinking that you know you, you give drug A, which does uh, thing B in the body, and uh, you know uh, a, a, a result C occurs. Uh, but but human biology is complex, so I don't think we will ever find a mechanism of action by which SGLT2 inhibitors improve uh, outcomes. And I think it's a combination of these multi-organ uh, effects. So that's sort of one lesson to me. The second lesson is uh, that because they have these diffuse multi-organ uh, and multi sort of pathophysiologic benefits, then one can start sort of understanding why the same drug also have multi-disease benefit, right? So uh, uh, metabolism, uh, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, MI, hopefully. So, so, so that sort of makes sense. But the biggest lesson is that if a drug class can do all of these things, then what does this have to do with diabetes? And even patients without diabetes should benefit. And indeed, that's what the data are showing now. Yeah, I think that's a really nice summary of how things stand as far as mechanisms of action. You know, I, I think a lot of times what happens in cardiovascular medicine, it's I think also true in other branches of medicine, is that uh, large clinical trials are done, a drug is found to be effective, hopefully, but we think we know what the mechanism is of action is at the outset of those trials, but really we don't. And the fact that the trials are positive spurs basic and translational scientists to focus more on that drug or that class of drugs. And then over the next decade, we really understand what the mechanisms of action might be. 
So I, I think this is one of those classic cases of where we thought we knew what SGLT2 inhibitors were doing in terms of being drugs for glycemic control, but then realized that they do much, much more than that and really still trying to understand things. Well, you and I have talked a lot in this podcast, in the series of podcasts, of the benefits of various drugs, SGLT2 inhibitors uh, right now, uh, specifically we're covering, but uh, important also to cover side effects. So do you want to share with the audience what some side effects are of SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's sometimes uh, very easy to sort of blame side effects on the drug and not necessarily sort of the progression of the disease. You know, so, so that's the benefit of randomized controlled trials, because at the end of the trial, you can actually look at, you know, what, what, what is what. So if you look at the overall adverse events, uh, they are actually pretty comparable uh, between the two arms for SGLT2 inhibitor uh, versus uh, placebo. So really not sort of a lot of signal there. Uh, as such. And, and all the things that we sort of used to worry about at one point, uh, none of those uh, are, are now positive. And remember, it's not just one trial, right? We're talking about five trials now. Uh, DAPA and EMPA have REF trials, uh, EMPA have PEF trial, EMPA acute heart failure trial, and then the soloist uh, uh, trial and worsening heart failure as well. So first of all, all of those things like, you know, uh, fractures and amputations and cancers and fornea gangrene, and none of those have panned out. There's just no difference between a treatment arm and, and, and the placebo arm. Uh, so what are the things you sort of worry about? So again, sort of no real association with... Uh, uh, urosepsis, uh, UTI, or, or, or infections in general, but there is a definite increase in the risk of genital mycotic infection. But again, we need to put that in perspective. So if you look at some of the earlier trials in these patients, now granted that those trials were in patients with diabetes were at a high risk, but nevertheless, the, the, the risk for genital mycotic infection was in the sort of the high single digit uh, number. If you look at now these trials, because we have gotten smarter in how to use these drugs, we give our patients the instructions to, you know, for genital hygiene and keeping the area dry and clean. The absolute number is, is somewhere hovering around 1.7 to 2.2%. So say, give or take about 2%, certainly in placebo is about 0.5, So there's a threefold higher risk. That that threefold higher risk is proportionally, the absolute risk is about 2% or so. So the general recommendation is, uh, that, you know, again, I don't have the data to what I'm about to say, but it makes sort of clinical sense to me that if somebody has active genital mycotic infection or active UTI, I probably won't initiate at that time and let that infection be treated. If you develop genital mycotic infection despite taking all the precautionary measures uh, and you develop genital mycotic infection, then the general recommendation is to just continue the therapy and, and just treat the genital mycotic infection. If you get it once, uh, it, this does not guarantee that you will get it sort of recurrently, uh, especially considering the kind of benefits for the heart and the kidney we are seeing. Uh, uh, it's a relatively very low risk. Having said that, I mean, sooner or later, you're, you're going to come across some patient, maybe some uh, uh, you know, elderly female uh, in a nursing home, maybe, you know, uh, with, with hygiene issues or diaper or something like that with recurrent genital mycotic infection, and you will not be able to give it uh, to every single patient. But by and large, it's pretty manageable, which then brings us to the more serious side effects that people are really concerned about because cardiologists don't want to treat uh, diabetes and don't want to get into, you know, the diabetic complications. So hypoglycemia and uh, ketoacidosis. 
So hypoglycemia, you know, the mechanism of the drug is such that it uh, it prevents reabsorption of glucose in the urine. Uh, so if your glucose levels are not high, you don't spill as much glucose uh, uh, for it to be spilled out in the urine anyways. So the risk of hypoglycemia with SGLT2 inhibitors is almost non-existent unless you're taking secretagogues, sulfonylurea, or insulin therapy with it. So again, relatively very low risk, but a risk that can be mitigated by giving patients some instructions. And then the last risk, which, which the cardiologists worry about a lot, is, is ketoacidosis. So a few points. One is that, yes, there is a higher risk of ketoacidosis, but again, overall, very small risk, and I'll, I'll give some comparative numbers here in a second. But the bigger issue is not that you get a lot of diabetic ketoacidosis, but in those rare occasions where you do get diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, in these patients, the diagnosis is made late because, you know, you just think about it, you know, person calls you that, you know, they have nausea, vomiting, they're not feeling good. Uh, you have type 2 diabetes, you ask them to check glucose. Oh, your glucose is 650, go to the emergency room, I think you have DKA. But now, because of the mechanism of action of the drug and you're spilling urine, your drug, you know, your glucose is not 650, it's like 220. So we don't necessarily think about it till somebody gets really sick. So I think just keeping that in mind, patients having a car, tell the uh, emergency room physician that you're an SGLT2 inhibitor, check for ketone levels, and, and that, that can be significantly mitigated. So much so that taking these simple measures of educating the patients, again, I absolutely don't want to make light of side effects. We have to be very careful when we use these drugs. But actually, in some of the trials, there were zero cases of uh, ketoacidosis. And if you look at the cumulative data for ketoacidosis in heart failure trials, that is less then angioedema with ACE inhibitor trials and heart failure. So again, to just keep in perspective that these risks can be mitigated and in some cases completely obliterated by some simple education with the patient. The benefits are too far not to give these therapies. I really like that you underscored some points there, especially about DKA, where I think that word has scared a lot of, for sure, cardiologists from uh, prescribing SGLT2 inhibitors in patients who might otherwise be good candidates. And I think to an extent that's even happened in primary care. So important to know what the side effects and risks are, but to put them in the proper perspective. I guess the final thing I'll just ask you about in this podcast is patient selection. That is, who really are good candidates for SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah, so I will sort of give the answer the other way around as to who not to give uh, sort of SGLT2 inhibitors. So first, if you have type 2 diabetes, you should just get an SGLT2 inhibitor for sort of all the heart failure prevention and uh, heart failure treatment and kidney benefits or whatever. So I don't think we even need to get into sort of the debate whether or not you have heart failure. I think type 2 diabetic patients should get it. The people who should not get it, you know, so right now there's a contraindication for type 1 diabetes. So those patients should not get it. Obviously, pregnant women, lactating women should not uh, get it or not breastfeed. Uh, history of allergies to SGLT2 inhibitors sort of don't uh, uh, give the drug. Uh, renal function, it's, it's interesting because the empagliflozin trials uh, went down all the way to GFR of 20. And the general idea is that you start these drugs all the way to GFR of 20. Uh, I would assume that the guidelines, I don't know, the guidelines are not out yet, but they're probably going to be drug specific. So the DAPA uh, heart failure trial went to GFR of 20, uh, EMPA to 30. But you know, at some point, it really doesn't matter because the recommendation was that you start the drug, but on therapy over time, if the GFR falls down, you don't stop it. 
all the way to end-stage kidney disease. So short of end-stage kidney disease, you continue. That leads to a good question, you know, why not just give these drugs to patients on dialysis? You know, these drugs are sort of albumin bound and they, they don't necessarily get dialyzed off and dialysis patients are really high risk. And the reason for that is that we really don't have PKPD data. We don't know sort of the, you know, these drugs are predominantly renally cleared. We don't know the half-life and all that kind of stuff. So in the future, maybe, but today, end-stage kidney disease is a contraindication. The last point that I will make is that especially our colleagues in the primary care may have those notions uh, that the drug should not be used under a GFR of 45. Remember, that was a whole diabetes issue because the worse the GFR, the less these drugs are efficient in terms of glucose control because low GFR patients don't spill as much glucose in the urine. That has nothing to do with cardiorenal benefit. You start all the way down to GFR of 20, not 45. Let's just get that completely out of our mind, all the way down to GFR of 20, and then continue it, and then uh, stop if you have end-stage kidney disease. And again, I don't want to get ahead of the guidelines. Let's see what the guidelines say. But at this point, at least in my opinion, doesn't matter whether you have HEF-REF or HEF-PEF, uh, I think you should uh, be getting these therapies. Yeah, I agree with you. It'll be important to see what the guidelines say. But, but regardless, I still agree with you. That is, I think, your summary of the data and what to actually do in practice is, it mirrors exactly what I would say and what I would do. Well, it's been a great discussion in this section. Uh, just want to make sure the audience knows about our next podcast. Uh, in that next issue, we will be discussing about more heart failure drugs beyond just the SGLT2 inhibitors that we focused on in this particular episode. And the fact that they're more heart failure drugs means that they're more choices. So we're going to get into the thick of that in the next podcast. So please make sure to tune in for that one. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heart failure four. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.